These winter days as a snowman, two poems make me ponder gratitude and acknowledgement by Walter Bound, published in the Masterpiece. This has been a painful winter, but perhaps a meaningful winter. Let me explain. In his poem, The Snowman, the American poet Wallace Stevens is correct when he writes, one must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of pine trees crusted with snow. That's the way I have felt these days, hibernating inside with the snow outside, sitting alone on my brown comfy recliner. On my right, my mug of strong black tea is a constant companion. Meanwhile, I disturb the silence with gentle tapping as I write essays and stories. Then, for contrast, and a lesson on pathos, I listen and read War and Peace by Tolstoy. The cold of Moscow in 1812 was perfect for the cold of New Jersey in 2022. Back to the poem. What does Stevens mean by having a mind of winter? Are we so busy and active, this modern life of appointments and schedules and chores, that we do not stop and really stop long enough to hibernate and allow growth to rest? As an avid gardener, I know an essential cold winter is the best thing for my perennials and shrubs. Not so good for the rosemary. But how often do we stop, really stop, to even stop thinking? How can I perceive the frost without thinking of the frost? How can I contemplate death without worrying about making the most of my life? Is that part of the problem? Can I regard the frost by becoming insatiate frost too? When I ache at my climbing roses, weighted down with ice and snow, pulling away from the house and huge white trellis that is never tall enough, is that what this period of my life should be like too? The pain and solitude of bearing a load? Have I ever been this inactive? The cold has even made me stop walking. I'm eating more, unconsciously eating, and my pants are now very comfortable jogger pants with no need for a belt. 10 pounds can appear without any concern about notches on a belt or a pant size. <laughs> How pre-COVID-19. Even though I still teach full time, I come home with a mind of winter to consider how I am covered with frost too, like my red oak and maple and sugar gum trees in my precious garden. As an extrovert, such inversion is unusual. With COVID, my mind has never felt so much winter. It's been the weather and the pandemic, as well as the dramatic change to my lifestyle. The change from very involved father to let's text dad has been sobering. It's natural. Life, after all, is a casting off, as Arthur Miller writes in Death of a Salesman. But the house is it's so quiet, so still. I can actually hear ice cracking on my lilac bushes. In my pond too, the goldfish hibernate. A heater allows enough clear water for oxygen. Through the hole, the goldfish seem like they are luxuriating in a Turkish bath, huddled together for warmth and fellowship. Another poem, this one much more personal, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden, speaks to me so much more now at 52 than when I was a young and angry lad in college. Why was I so angry? 
Did I not have someone like this in the poem there for me? Even though I may not have appreciated all that was done for me at the time? Hmm, that's a vital question. So what happens when one has a mind of winter and thinks about the past? If I'm thinking at all, is that really a mind of winter? In the first three stanzas, Hayden writes, Sundays too, my father got up early and put on his clothes in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. There is so much to admire here. We have the poet's recognition of a father's love. Even on Sunday, he got up early to provide heat for the family. Even in such cold, blue-black cold, with cracked hands from weekday labor, the father still made the fire blaze. And then that line, the cuts like cold. No one ever thanked him. As a child of divorce, feebly taking care of a younger brother and a sister at the age of 10, the de facto man of the house until I left for graduate school, I often felt like the father in Hayden's poignant but painful poem of love and duty, and what was done quietly and without applause for love. Driving a sister here and there and back with my car and my gas, washing the dishes, mowing the lawn, trying to keep the house quiet while mother slept after dinner to go to work as a nurse at 11 p.m. And then the silent trauma and anxiety at night of being alone with siblings, wondering how I could keep everyone safe from the monsters or the robbers. Then when my mom was out, I found my solitude behind the sofa and pressed against the glass windows, the lace white curtain like a shawl around my shoulders, waiting hoping for those headlights to return, knowing that for another day, we would be okay. Each time headlights passed by or took the shape and shade of different eyes, my anxiety increased. Would she ever get home? Why was I placed in this situation? What I did then as a child, the labor and the emotional refuse filling an already filled basin may not have gone unnoticed, or noticed, but I know what I did as a genuine father for my family weaves in and out of appreciation and assumption. Was it my way of getting noticed, of getting appreciated, even though such work was an assumption or a parental duty? Who else would do this? Would I have been able to say, I can't, I got studying to do? For the record, I didn't really ever, you know, like study or like studying. I would always ask my mom what needed to be done around the house. Even when she needed money to remodel the kitchen, I gave her a loan at 20 years from my job at the Holiday Inn. It was a win-win. I would always ask my mom what needed to be done around the house. Even when she needed money to remodel the kitchen, I gave her a loan at 20 years old from my job at the Holiday Inn. It was a win-win. She gave me half the interest from what the bank would have charged. Somehow, I wanted to be noticed and appreciated. All my life, this is the role that I have learned. Hey, you can depend on me, and can you love me, and not take me for granted, and perhaps yes, ask me about my life, please. What am I writing? What am I reading? How does my garden grow? I know you won't. Your life is so busy, but, but please, I'm still here. 
holding things together, I'm tired. And I'm too tired and embarrassed to ask for the fear of not getting an answer. For some reason, I'm still waiting to be thanked because I feel what I did as a troubled young man has gone unnoticed. Tales go unread. My precious inner world unexplored except in my stories and in therapy and with my wife. The stories I tell are either fantasies or grossly exaggerated. Fiction writers are, by nature, counterfeiters, right? We are told that feelings are not facts, but these feelings do have a foundation not based on myth, but reality. Then, in the second stanza, Hayden writes, I'd waken here the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Growing up, the only chronic anger in the house was perhaps my own. There was a hole my dad placed in the living room closet door after being told to leave. I was nine or ten. That was anger. That was actually frightening. I remember it so well and how long that hole remained like a wound that never heals. When I go back, I still see it there. And I hear my words. You heard her. Get out. Working hard to keep everyone happy is one way we think we can guarantee not being tossed out or locked out or kicked out and that our kids will still love us and need us and call us. After a while though, without therapy and having a mind like winter and perhaps medication, such a role will nurture the evil fruits of resentment and frustration. Feeling like a one-way road is lonely. The anger I get from my father I know why, besides the DNA factor. In my journals, in my essays, back when I was young, and in my attitude and tone, the anger directed towards him was unwarranted, unjustified, misplaced, misdirected. We both just wanted to be noticed and loved. My dad would do anything for anyone at any time. He is one of the most selfless men I've known. And for many decades, I knew very little. As long as he bought me an Atari or a new Rush album, I was happy. But in the long term, neither exchange made us happy. Accepting this has been hard. Then I think of me as a dad. Of course dad will pick us up. Of course dad will wait. Of course dad will make waffles. Of course dad will attend every concert. Of course dad will wash the dishes with each daughter having such a homework load. Of course, Dad will complain and sometimes passively complain that we do not do enough, but it actually gives him a purpose, right? And of course, when boyfriends arrive, he will miss helping as much as he has helped and ponder his usefulness and purpose. Then he will need a mind of winter. What do I do now? All I know is that I miss waking up early to get everyone donuts or making muffins or cooking eggs for my daughters before taking the SAT. Well, them taking the SAT, not me. It gave me a reason to live and a reason for them to love me. Not that they needed This is not psychologically healthy, I know, but it's a role I've learned to play with the panache worthy of David Garrick playing Shakespeare. Reading this poem now, I think of my daughters. They are away, and I miss them. I miss them dearly and their boyfriends. I still sneak by Nancy's closed bedroom door thinking she is there, 
but Nancy, 20, is studying in Madrid, Spain, and Madeline, in graduate school at 24, is hard at work at Georgia Tech studying aerospace engineering. We are all very close, and we keep in regular contact. But regular contact with me and for my wife meant a lot of work and labor and laughs and car trips and consultations and remediations. And now our girls are women, adults, and it falls hard. I can feel the frost on my limbs. I can feel the ice keeping my feet from moving. I can feel my mind becoming like a snowman, even while listening to the lies of Prince Andrew, Pierre, and Natasha in War and Peace. The snowman knows how to live vicariously. My wife, Mary Jane, said she has borne the empty nest syndrome easier because ever since she released them from her womb, it's been a process of letting go, day by day, year by year. I was not there to cry when they boarded the bus. I was not there for their first steps. I was teaching and home for so much, but not like Mary Jane being there. When we dropped Malin off for college, my wife cried. I did not. I was in denial. She was going off to camp. Then she'd be back during winter break, but Thomas Wolfe is right. You never come home again. And that's the way it should be. When Madeline's awesome boyfriend Brian helped her move with his truck, I was not needed to drive to Rutgers to help. I both loved and cried at this. What do I now do? When Nancy's awesome boyfriend Gavin moved her out of her dorm, I both loved and cried about this. My wife said that God gave us daughters to have a man like me to help our daughters find strong, loving, smart, and faithful men. Well, I guess like me. I think it would have been a disaster if I had to raise a man. I'm still loved and needed, but now something else is there. The way it should be. Now it's just finding a way I need to be, especially with my wife busy now with her new role and her new career. So now all three are busy, daughters and wife. I am now in this mind of winter. Do I resemble my pensive Buddha statue in my frozen garden by another one of my frozen ponds? Yes, but that's okay, I think. In the last stanza, Hayden writes, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well, what did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? I did speak indifferently to my father. I'm embarrassed by how I did speak to him, as if I was the adult and he the child. We spoke different languages. He was a hard-working man from a working-class family from Camden, New Jersey. I was the first bound to graduate from college. I recall my dad reading one book, a book about a boat that sunk. That book still appears to me on his nightstand when he would take us every other weekend. That was something not many dads did, and I never appreciated that. But with the child support and surrendering half the house to pay for college and all those trips on his boat, it was the equivalent of driving out the cold and polishing shoes, right? Sure, who did I have to enter my internal world? Who did I have to share the secrets of that world? Who did I have as a wingman or an Obi-Wan Kenobi? Wasn't it just easier to play the role and act like a nut? Of course. And I think, like the child, poet, adult in the poem, what did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? I had no idea. It must have been so lonely. 
He wasn't puritanical. I was rarely punished, even though many times I deserved punishment. But he played his role as the weekend dad with a certain amount of austerity, but also with so much fun, like cutting a half gallon of ice cream into fourths, and we each got a quarter, or cooking with beer, or ice cream sundaes for room service, or making that coaster derby car that won me second place. Did it matter that I almost crashed and died on that hill? <laughs> no, it was a thrill. And my dad did it with just duct tape and pluck and love. A couple of years ago, I was reading poems at dinner during Christmas. The girls were home, and I recited this poem, Those Winter Sundays. Tad, Malin asked, did you read that poem to make us feel guilty about not appreciating your efforts enough? I didn't know what to say. No, but maybe yes. But I've read poems to them, like, forever. Like listening to Robert Frost on audio while driving to New Hampshire for her C-SPAN interviews when she was in high school. Was this my passive-aggressive thing? It was just something that I did that I was thrilled to do. I loved playing that role. I'm the driver here, and my 17-year-old is the one with the media credentials to get into the democratic debate. Now, what is my role? The mind of winter is figuring this out. In the spring, I hope to tear out of the ground healthier than ever and blossom like my peonies on my organic worm tea. The fragrance is worth the wait. It fills the entire yard. Back to the snowman. Stephen concludes, for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there and nothing that is. Okay, we're in Taoist territory here, the world of paradox. Luckily, Lazul and Waterbound go way back to my early college days. As a snowman, I've been listening in the snow, sometimes literally, sometimes with a craft beer in the garden by the fire. Earlier in the poem, he writes, Of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of a land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place. The snowman knows no misery, even in the few leaves that are around. Like the snowman, I have been cold a long time, but that's okay. There is nothing wrong with the cold as long as one does not stay cold the whole time, unless you're frosty. The place, my house, may seem bare, with the sound of the wind in the same place that had once been filled with so much life, and not just of children and friends and birds and raspberries. From the poem, I understand the irony that love can exist when the physical arms are not there, that I love you can exist without having a child to bounce on a knee, with a three-toothed smile that makes you feel that God does indeed exist. And through this love, you will exist, even when you no longer exist. Do not be scared of the nothing, or the void, or changes. Have a mind like winter. Okay, back to Tolstoy. Talk about having a mind like winter. Thanks for listening. Take care.